big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. We'd like to take a minute to thank our newest patron, Iona. Welcome to the team. If you want to be like Iona and get access to exclusive content like bonus episodes, outtakes, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash podandprejudice. We also want to remind you that we have stickers. They're made with our gorgeous show art, which was designed by Torrance Brown, and they are very cute, if I do say so myself. To get yours, go to podandprejudice.com slash merch. Finally, if you're listening to this on the day of its release, that's Tuesday, October 20th, we are celebrating our one-year anniversary. We can't believe it's already been a whole year since we dropped our first episode, and what a wild year it's been. A huge thank you to everyone who's been with us since the beginning, everyone who's ever shared the show with a friend, to everyone who's just joining us now, and to everyone who's ever sent us an email about corsetry. We love you, and we wouldn't be here without you. To celebrate, we are going live tonight, again, that's if you're listening in real time, on Tuesday, October 20th, at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be talking about our experience thus far, answering all your questions, and making a super fun cocktail from Becca's Gin Austin recipe book. So give us a follow on Instagram at Pod and Prejudice and tune in at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And now enjoy this week's episode covering the first half of episode four of the 1995 BBC version of Pride and Prejudice with our guest Eric Silver. It's Lizzie and her three other really fucking annoying siblings. Yes, she has really <laughs> annoying siblings. <laughs> and whatever Jane is. I don't know if it's her friend. I don't know if it's like, They're probably gay for each other. That's what I was getting. They're sisters. Especially, and I'll, I'll say this, I'm definitely going to say this again. After watching Avatar and just like seeing like the subtext there, I'm just like, why are you guys just dating? Because it sounds like you're both having boy problems. They are both having boy problems. They are sisters, but still. Yeah, I guess it was more like with the actresses working with each other. Oh, oh yeah, they have some chemistry. When they were doing the flower thing, I was like, are you guys going to kiss? The tension, yeah. Feel? Eric, you fit in very well here because our, basically, our headcanon for almost everyone is that they're gay. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, especially, especially with the talking to they gave Bingley. It's like, Bingley, you don't like women. What are you doing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> when the three of them are standing over him, <laughs> just be like, Bingley, stop it. I actually took a screenshot of that moment to bring up later just because it was one of the funniest things I have seen filmed for television. Yeah. Good. I was trying to do it and I failed. So I'm very <laughs> oh, I did it. Don't it. worry. We got it. We got it. I was it. like, no, it's another photo of Colin Firth frowning. Ah, oh, uh. damn. That is the entirety of this series. It's just Colin Firth <laughs> staring. Yeah, like all of it, all of it. Also, my mom, I watched, so I rewatched the last episode that we did and then this one with her because she was one behind. And when Charlotte was getting married to Colin, she was like, I think that Charlotte is gay. She says she doesn't, she's not romantic. She doesn't really care for men. I mean. Oh my God. I love your mother getting in on the picking up the queer vibes in Pride and Prejudice. Yes. This is Becca. 
This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. Today we are going to be discussing episode four of the 1995 version starring Colin Firth and Jennifer Eel. And today we have a very special guest with us. We're very excited to have Eric Silver on the show. Hi, Eric. Hello. No, I'm Mr. Collins. I've been Mr. <laughs> oh, Collins the whole time. <laughs> We have the Mr. Collins on the show today with us. Just here to make everyone uncomfortable. You can't see, but I'm waving exclusively with my fingers. Oh my gosh. I hate that. I hate it all. I'm so happy to be here. This is so much fun. Yay. It's really wonderful. Eric, can you please tell the listeners what you do, how you're in the podcast world? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Why, thank you. Well, I am the dungeon master of Join the Party. In my opinion, the best sounding and most accessible 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons podcast out there. I am also the creator and writer of Next Stop, an audio sitcom that the full season has just been released and we just finished. And I'm also the head of creative at Multitude, a podcast collective and studio that I think is pretty swell. We have seven shows now. It's a lot of shows. That's bonkers. That's incredible. So, Eric, a couple questions for you about Jane Austen. First of all, tell the listeners your experiences with Jane Austen. How much have you been with her work? How much have you not? There are no wrong answers. Well, I think the first thing I need to say was that I am certified and have a master's degree as a high school English teacher. And I was a high school English teacher for a year in New York City. Wow. Yeah. So like this examining capital C canon works is definitely something that I love to do. And especially looking at media adaptations is something that I had to do when I was teaching. The issue is, is that because I was a high school boy, I got to read the other part of the canon, which was just like Fitzgerald forward. Mm -hmm. So the Anglophile stuff and like I'm just super duper not an Anglophile. Like I just don't get it. Mm -hmm. I'm just like. I don't know why you have to wear that cod piece or your 10 (laughs) layers of dress. Like, that's just not my thing. I read these when I was in, like, high school. And, of course, like, because I also was of age in, like, 2008, 2009, I had, like, big crushes on girls who loved these novels. So, so, like, I, I definitely like a lot of osmosis around it, although this is not, like, my particular jam of book. No, this is fantastic because one of the constant refrains we have on this podcast is that neither Molly nor I majored in English in college. So we feel like kind of posers. So you're bringing like an air of legitimacy to us in this moment. So thank you for that. Absolutely. I will say I did a five-year program to get my master's in English education as quickly as possible because I'm like, oh, I, I want to do five years of college and then immediately be a teacher. That sounds smart and totally good for your mental health. (laughs) Um, So I actually was a dramatic literature major, which they had at NYU, which was like an English major, but just for plays. Oh my gosh. But then they were like, no, 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 you need to be an actual English major. And then I had to take like all of my like standard issue English classes when I was like a junior and senior. So like I was slogging through books like these when I was like, but I just, can I just analyze Beckett instead? Like, this blows. <laughs> well, we were both theater majors, so we do know that life very well. Real. Oh, yeah. You're talking to two certified Shakespeare nerds. Oh, I was in a Hamlet symposium my senior year where we all just re- read and reread Hamlet from different ways. I had to do this presentation on, like, this German, like, the idea of, like, the ghost in the machine Hamlet. 
that they rewrote and it was totally incomprehensible and I got like a B plus on that paper. It was Whoa. so it was so hard. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is why I was bigger on the reading the Shakespeare out loud and less big on the analyzing of the different adaptations because I would also have gotten a B plus on that because I yeah. But in any case, back to Jane Austen, who Our girl. a different uh, English author. It's your girl, Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah, it's your girl, Jane Austen. So based on what you do know about Austen, which character would you say you relate to the most? Well, here's the thing. All of the main character women are the interesting and witty ones, and all of the men are just grumpy and terrible people. That's true. So <laughs> maybe it's like one of the like side characters who are friends with Lizzie or any of the other in any other maybe Bronte book or any other Jane Austen book who's like a confidant but also has to marry someone who's like not of the gentry for sure it's like they're middle class sounds kind of like Charlotte yeah you could be a Charlotte well Charlotte's in a loveless marriage with the man who waves with his fingers so I hope yeah. <laughs> that's true that's true but like like Charlotte but like Allowed to marry someone who's not Mr. Collins. Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. We can get behind that. Yeah. Like in a different book, you're married to like someone who's like a mercantile trader or something. Right. Who's like coded as Jewish, but they never explicitly <laughs> say it. Oh my God. Yes. Oh man, that's the exact opposite of me because I never stop talking about how I'm Jewish. Anyway. <laughs> oh good. This is going to be a great fucking episode then. We're all Jewish here in this house. Good. <laughs> this is going to be a wonderful little like pre-Shabbat record sesh. It's going to be great. <laughs> oh amazing. In this house, we have a designated Shabbos boy. Incredible. Okay. Uh, and then the last Austin question we have before we're going to jump right in is uh, whether or not you have any Austin hot takes you want to lay on us before we start. No, I just think that like the gendering of books is so interesting to me because I feel like as a boy book nerd and like this is also a little bit different because my mom did her uh, senior thesis on Fitzgerald so she really her favorite book is The Great Gatsby and I feel like from this era Gatsby is also mine because I also for various reasons I like that it's in one summer I like that it's like very much of its time and you can only look at it and be like wow this is exactly like our real life and other things and everyone's just like really terrible and some of the descriptions are amazing but I feel like that lost generation was like books for boys and not even like Hemingway like I would include Fitzgerald in this as well but like I never ventured into the Bronte and uh Austin era because I'm just like I don't care about these girls who say funny things to themselves but then actually need to deal with the societal pressures that are on them which I'm sure that girls who were in high school needed but then again I could have learned something by like actually having a hyper intelligent very crafty very much like the whole plot revolves around getting what you want eventually sort of book and seeing it from a different perspective mm. so like just the gendering of book nerds is so stupid to me and I really wish I had read something like this even if I had to like suffer through the actual reading of Wuthering Heights mm -hmm. oh that is a different podcast but Wuthering Heights is one of my favorite books so if you ever want somebody to make Wuthering Heights be loud and relatable to you you can always contact me I'm so happy to do that for everybody <laughs> but again 
different podcast because this is about comedy and not about how the Moors of England uh, represent the wildness of Heathcliff and Kathy and their lust for each other anyway. You know, I've never read any of these books that are being brought up and I don't know what I was doing you in high school. You never read The Great Gatsby? No, I read The Great Gatsby, but I didn't read Wuthering Heights. I didn't read any Bronte, didn't read any Austen. Here's the other thing, though. The Great Gatsby is literally like 130 pages. That's true. <laughs> it's like a fucking pamphlet. It is very It's like short. Animorphs. It might as well be Animorphs. Animorphs for sad alcoholics. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's just the same. It's the same book. Yeah, it is interesting that um, generally, I because I didn't read Austen in class or the Bronte sisters in class. I read those on my own because nerd. I was a nerd. Uh, <laughs> and also because my mom uh, raised us with these novels, which is interesting because it sounds like your mom raised you with Fitzgerald more than yes. anything else. And so I think that really the books that we take to have roots in what our parents showed us was cool as opposed to what we read in class. <laughs> My parents so, read me Harry Potter. <laughs> mine too. So here we are now yeah. reading this as an adult. But I feel like that's like parents running into a room and kicking down the door and it's like, kids like books now? <laughs> It's like, oh my gosh. Good. Oh, thank God. Oh my God. Yeah. When I was really little, my dad was terrified that my sisters and I would only ever read Harry Potter. But it turns out that reading Harry Potter was really important because all three of us, we have very different careers, very different interests, but we're all huge book nerds. And that is directly because my dad read us Harry Potter when we were really little. So the joke's on him because it went the other way. And we definitely read way more because we love Harry Potter. But that is a different podcast. That is a different podcast. But I will just say, before we actually get into the Jane Austen of this, my parents were also terrified that I would only read Harry Potter. And after, so I went to high school and I stopped reading for fun. And then I went to college and I was just reading plays. And then I got out of college and I started rereading Harry Potter right away. And I did two rereads in a row. And it took me two years. And my mom was like, please read a book that's not Harry Potter. And I only started reading books that weren't Harry Potter when it came time to do this podcast. So there are both sides of the coin. There you go. It happens. I was going to say, like, yeah, you know, reading leads to more reading. But sometimes it doesn't, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? All all you have to do if you want to become more of a bookworm is start a podcast about reading classic works of feminist literature from the Regency era in England. Oh, classic. And speaking of doing that... Yes. We should talk about this one. Let's talk about the movie version. Exactly. (laughs) The movie version, though. (laughs) To be fair, though, this movie version is so important to the discussion of the book that I said this before in a different episode. There are people out there who think that lines or scenes that are in this version happen in the book. One very specific scene in this part is very iconic in this TV adaptation and isn't in the book. And everyone thinks of this scene with Pride and Prejudice, but we will get there. Yes, I could not tell the difference. So please let me know. Excellent, I will. We will, because it. I think I know what you're talking about, and it does not belong in this world, so. Anyway, let us dive right into episode four of the 1995 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, starring Colin Firth and Jennifer Eels. So. Scene one starts immediately after proposal get-in. Darcy is leaving the house and he and Lizzie are both reflecting on what's just happened and we hear their voices playing in each other's heads, which I thought was a lovely touch on the movie's part. (laughs) All right. For first thing, I'm I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, go for it. Go for it. So I know that like in books, a lot of this stuff has like epistolary parts and I realize now it was a flashback, like seeing the whole thing. And I really tried to just watch this and then I looked for context I'm like oh it was the the letters and all that stuff 
Mm-hmm. But there were parts where, and even later when Lizzie is reading the letter, and since she's not like directly reading the letter, I'm like, man, these guys are like psychically talking to each other. <laughs> this is actually a sci-fi book. It must take so much energy out of themselves when, when they're doing this. Yeah, they're like force projecting. Yeah, it was like a real choice to like not have them explicitly... Like, they weren't looking at anything, so I'm like, why are they just, like, talking at each other's brains? Yes. It's, it's wild how they do this, because this scene in the book is basically just Lizzie stewing in her own emotions about what just happened, and the show brings in Darcy also stewing in his emotions over what just happened. Yeah, which we don't find out in the book that, that he did that at all until, like, the last chapter. And so I thought that was actually a good touch where he reminisces on her saying, had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner, which then at the end of the book he brings up again and is like, that rang in my head for days. And I was like, oh, okay. But I did think that this was not as good as the moment in the book in general because this part in the book was so masterfully crafted. It was like, she reads the letter, she doesn't process it, she reads it four more times, and each time she falls a little bit out of the I hate Darcy realm that she was in when she first read it. So, but this was this was good too. This was fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that Jane Austen's most impressive writing in her book is in this part because you just see Lizzie read the letter and the first time she reads it, she's like, what a dick. Then she reads it again and she's like, oh, well, I guess this part's fair. And then she starts reflecting and she reads it like five more times as she's sitting in one place and she's like, fuck, actually. That could have been so much more interesting to me because that we saw both of them. I do like that we are understanding more of Darcy's interiority, which does go really nicely into his letter. Mm-hmm. But if we would like have deepened the Lizzie character a little bit more because then it's her against Darcy's letter. Right. But instead we had them talking into each other's brains. I think what this does is center the story a little bit with Darcy. But what it does allow us to do is see the flashback of him and Wickham being bros and then Wickham being a douche. Yes. Well, we haven't quite gotten there yet because first he gets home and he runs into Fitzy. And oh, we have nicknames for all of the characters. So his cousin Fitzwilliam is Fitzy. I got it. Yeah, great. (laughs) Just checking. So he runs into Fitzy and... He's like, Darcy, are you unwell? And he's like, uh, 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 you'll forgive me. I gotta go. And then he runs upstairs. Then he starts writing the letter. And now we get the flashback of him playing with Wickham as a boy. Uh, Mike, my boyfriend who I watched this with, pointed this out. The way he's writing the letter reads as if he's writing a really long DM. Yeah. I really like the flashback of this because it was like it was a period piece inside of a period piece. Yes. Like all the things you would have to do to prep for making a period piece. Like, all right, we need to make sure there's no anachronism. We need to make sure the costumes are right. That was like, all right, we need to go even farther back. Like burlap. Yes. (laughs) Fishing hooks. Like, let's make sure it's on point. Also, these little boys had long hair. I loved their hair. Yeah, one of them had a straight up lob. Like my hair in quarantine lob. Yeah. Oh, your hair in quarantine. Talking about my hair in quarantine. I'm wearing a hat so you can't see it. (laughs) So we hear about Wickham's growing up with Darcy, them kind of getting older, Wickham's friendship with Darcy's father, and then how his behavior became very, um, what was the word that he used to describe it? Bad. No. Bad. I had idleness and dissipation written down. Dissipation. Yes. He walks in on him making out with a girl who is in disarray, not really wearing any clothing. Except for all of the underclothing. So it's like a lot of clothing. (laughs) It's a lot of clothing for our standards, but a few episodes back, Collins walked in on Lydia wearing 
her underclothing and he like turned into a tomato. He was like, oh, ah. amazing. And she was like, oh, and yeah. <laughs> I just like the amount of clothing would be like if you're baking out with someone who's wearing a cardigan and like a, a camisole <laughs> under her shirt. Yes, exactly. Yes, but the costume that we're not talking about in this part is Darcy's graduation robes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right, just like, do we have a graduation cap somewhere? Where do we get it? <laughs> Were the clothes exactly the same back then? Because he looked like just a modern day graduated guy. Honestly, I don't know, but I really hope so. And I'm sure like the costume designers who work on these BBC masterpiece things, they work really hard. They're very detailed. So I'm sure it's accurate, but it does look like something you would order in a polyester blend for your high school graduation. It must just all be the same. I will take a small detour towards IMDb because I wanted to make sure I had like a full summary and understood what was happening. So I looked at the trivia and eight of the trivia bites were about how pieces of clothing for this episode was worn again in different period pieces throughout the 90s and 2000s. Whoa! I'll send y'all a screenshot later. Yes, please. <laughs> it's very mean. <laughs> the best part about it is like half of them, it's like zero out of two people found this interesting. And I'm like, yeah, because that's a mean thing to say, calling out the customers. <laughs> yeah. Zero out of two people found this interesting. <laughs> so only two people commented and both were like, nah. Well, one of the people people looking was Eric. <laughs> so then we get into five years ago and Darcy's father dies and he had left George Wickham a living, which a living is a job in the priesthood or the clergy, right? So he had left him this and George Wickham said, I don't want to go into the clergy. I want to go study the law with big quotation marks around the law. And can I have 3,000 pounds instead of the living? And Darcy gives it to him. Is the law that he was studying um, statutory ages in <laughs> the UK at the time? Yes. Yes, except he didn't study it. Right. As we're getting to this point, I was like, oh, I guess he's just like a ruffian. Like, I guess he's kissing ladies and stuff. And then it was like, oh, no. Oh, no. He's a pedophile. No, he's a genuine predator yeah like he's the worst he's disgusting also the girl that he's making out with looks like she might be a baby too when darcy walks in on him it's never clear whether or not he's like seducing women and like taking their virtue or he's having sex with hookers both it, i think it depends on his amount of money at any given point in time yeah he's also a big gambler and drinker and you can infer from the time period he might have been doing a little bit of opium as well so mm -hmm, like sure. wickham's just like He's out there partying, but I think the parts of Wickham that are the most worth condemning are his complete selfishness with other people's money and his sexually predatory behavior towards teenaged girls. Yeah, I think that at this point, again, because I had not refreshed myself on this and I realized that they, we had seen Wickham in earlier episodes, I was like, oh, is this entire plot going to be hinged on like someone who would just be kind of like a party animal who like, your, you know, your friend who just like goes out a lot and mm -hmm. carouses, but is not like a bad person, especially because like we see him in the army. So we're like, okay, is Darcy right? Is Wickham right? And then it's like, boom, trying to marry a 15-year-old to take her money. Like, there it is. Yep. 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 And when I first read this book, I was a big old Wickham stan until I found this out, and I was shocked. I had no idea what was going on there, so. I like that, though. That's how why it's relevant, because as we look back at these 19th and early 20th century books that have, like, different moral codes and standards, we can examine them and be like, oh, is this person actually a good person or not? 
I guess we would say this like in Little Women as we talk about the youngest daughter mm -hmm. is like, is she actually a bad person or she just wants things? Right. Like, especially as we look at women and like guys who defy like the moral, the standard code of things. But then it's like, oh no, Wickham is a is actually a bad person. Yeah. Like, I really want to make this oh, clear. Absolutely. Jane Austen is like, oh no. <laughs> Lizzie, Lizzie girl, I need you to know Wickham is the bad person in this story. Yeah. One thing that I do think is a little bit lost in this part, which makes me sad, partially because it's told from Darcy's perspective, is that what Lizzie's big realization is as she's reading this letter partially is that she misjudged Darcy because he insulted her the first time that they met and that really like stuck in her brain and she decided he was a bad person. Whereas Wickham charmed the pants off her the first time they met and flirted with her a lot and made her feel special. And she just decided he was a good person. And she has this moment that like, oh my God, I've been blinded by my own vanity towards these men based on how they perceived me the first time we met. And I think that that's relevant because it's it, Wickham's the hot, charming guy who's able to like convince everyone he's a good guy whereas Darcy has no social skills but our sweet boy means well he really does for sure uh he does Molly I was very confused by this last part of the letter so can okay. I say what I think happened yes please. and you correct me as I, as I do this yes this is like I feel like where you're driving and they're like, oh, take the wheel. And I'm like, I already have my permit. I don't <laughs> want to do this. Do it. Okay. So this is what I think, because these these two parts really confuse me. The part with Ms. Georgina and the part with Bingley. Mm -hmm. So Ms. Georgina was 15. Wickham was like, oh, hell yeah. Going to get her inheritance, which was 30,000 pounds. He flirts with her. She's an impressionable 15-year-old. Also, the casting, she looked like she was 11. I thought that that was really good. Also, she was wearing white because, don't know if you knew, she was a virgin. <laughs> 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 and then she got sent somewhere where her like m her minder was like also kind of like didn't care what happened to her. Wickham showed up, tried to marry her before the marriage actually happened. Darcy swooped in and was like, no, stop it. No. And then he like ran away. Very good. We just got on the highway and we were cruising and you did a very good job. You switched lanes and everything. Good job. Thank you. That is what happened. The second part is so confusing to me, this part with Bingley. So with Bingley, does Darcy think that everyone else in the Bennett family sucks except for Lizzie? Yes. Is that what it was? Yeah. And Jane. <laughs> That's it. That's the whole thing. That's the tea. This part of the letter is truly offensive. It's not something that he can actually apologize for and have it be okay. He says, your family's embarrassing loud, rowdy, and of course I didn't want Bingley to marry into your family. So we took him away to London and we told him your family sucks and he believed us because he's Bingley and he needs 12 opinions on everything and he'll believe what we tell him. Holy shit. I could not believe that. Yeah. That was wild. Yep. Also, like front load that and then be like, but I was right about everything else. <laughs> so actually in the book, he does front load that. It's like the entire first half of the letter is your family sucks, you're poor, and also Wickham is a bad guy, so please love me again. That's the arc of the letter in the book. But actually, the way that it was written in the movie, first, Darcy sits at his desk and he writes out all the stuff about Wickham and we see him like finish the letter. He puts out a candle with his bare hands, which I thought was an excellent family <laughs> touch. <laughs> this is how you start to get into the female gaze, just watching Darcy like anxiously go back and forth and be all angsty and like put out a candle with his fingers. Yeah. And writing really angstily. Yeah, for yeah. sure. 
Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. And I thought when he said, this is my full account of my dealings with George Wickham, that that was the end of the letter. And I was like, is this movie really going to skip over everything else that he said in that letter? Like, what is happening? But then when Lizzie gets the letter, she's reading it and it picks up where he left off. So we start with her reading about Bingley and we get that shot of Bingley sitting in the chair the sisters and Darcy standing above him and the sisters just like talking to him at the same time. Oh, Becca pulled it up. I had to because I had to take a picture of this because it was the most ridiculous shot I have so ever seen. Funny. Does, can you see it's this? It's so good. Yeah, I tried to take a screenshot, but Hulu didn't like it. So I'm so glad that you took a screenshot as well. Oh, I, I did this on my phone because I was like, this cannot go by. Listeners, we understand this is an audio medium. Graham, don't yell at us. We will post this to our Instagram when we post this uh, episode of the podcast. Yes. Can I be the the sister with like the really severe eyebrows? Oh, yeah. That is Caroline. And she is a brutally mean person. So if you want to channel that energy, she is the character for that. Yeah. Just do like a really bad Photoshop of our faces on top. I'm just saying I don't have to be Darcy is what I'm saying. Excellent. (laughs) I'm on your podcast. I'm not going to presume that I'm Darcy. No, you can be Caroline. Becca will be Darcy and I'll be Louisa. No, I'm Bingley. I know I'm Bingley. It's okay. <laughs> I accept my fate. No, Bingley has to be the the art of the podcast. It's us yelling at the podcast for us to talk about. <laughs> us to talk about this stuff more. Yes. So, okay, so he's given her the letter at this point. One thing that is also true is that they also convinced Bingley that Jane wasn't into him. Oh, right. Yes. That's yeah. a big one. That's a third part of the letter. Well, I want to talk more a little bit about the movie making because I think that there are two shots that really, which is why I got some confused because they lay it on so thick. 
I didn't think it was true. One was this particular shot where three people are berating Bingley in a chair like he's in an interrogation. Yes. And the other was like the super hyped up versions of the Bennetts. Those were real. Okay. I couldn't tell if it was like, uh, it, it felt like in a movie where you had to demonstrate debauchery, where mm-hmm. like people were running around, people were dropping things, people were yelling at each other, especially Mrs. Bennett. I was just like, did this really happen? Or was this reshot? Chewing with her mouth full. So this flashback was brilliantly done. So this was this happened in a previous episode. They were at a party, and we see throughout the party the sisters being wild, Mary playing the piano really badly, Daddy Bennett coming over telling her to stop playing the piano really badly. We see Jane and Bingley interacting at that party as well, but all of those were shots that did happen already. And when Lizzie reads them, she thinks back on that party and she realizes that Darcy is right about her family. Sure. And in Proposal Get-In, actually not in Proposal Get-In, but he visits Lizzie twice in the previous episode. And the first time they talk about marriage for some reason because, you know, the book and the movie, they have to. Sure. And she says that it would be possible for a woman to be settled too near her family. And he said, you wouldn't want to be settled too near Longbourn, I think, saying, like, you're different from your family, right? Sure. And she doesn't pick up on that. But now she's, like, listening to him talk about how shitty her family is. And she's like, oh, my family's kind of shitty. I think they do a really good job at demonstrating this later in this episode mm-hmm. because I went really hard on this letter. Like, I had a lot of notes on this letter. Yeah. But the only thing I noticed, I'm like, wow, the other Bennett sisters really suck. They do. Like, oh, they're yes. really annoying. They pout. They cry. They only care about status. They bother their mother and father. Mrs. Bennett reinforces all of this stuff. Like, I'm sure, and what I understand about this book, like, I know they were always terrible, but, like, they really kind of lay it on thick and really double down on some scenes in, in in this particular episode. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also Lizzie starting to realize how terrible they are. Like, it's playing out in front of her. And when you're reading it in the book's perspective, you can kind of see, oh, Lizzie's starting to pick up on it more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in the movie, you get to see, oh, these are some really highlighted reasons why people don't want to associate with the Bennets. Right. And in terms of Bingley being convinced that Jane doesn't love him, we see a flashback of them at the party and her kind of serenely smiling at things that he's saying. And Darcy says that he saw them interact and thought Bingley was in love, but Jane couldn't give two shits about him. And actually, it does kind of look like that. And that's kind of Jane's biggest flaw and why she's not my favorite character in this book is because she does not allow her feelings to take any sort of power in her life she just like lets people walk all over her and lets the world pass her by and that's what she's doing with Bingley and Charlotte warned her in an earlier part of the book I don't remember if this happened in the movie or not but Charlotte said if Jane doesn't show him how she feels he's gonna move on Mm. and he did that is so interesting, especially because Mr. and Mrs. Bennett are used as such comedic foils, especially in the beginning of the book, but then throughout this entire series. But it's like, oh, no, this is a real society we're in. When you say shit like that, things happen. Like, if you're op- so openly craven about moving up in society like Mrs. Bennett is, like, people are going to know. Because you're doing it at parties where people are there. Yes, exactly. And that's something about also seeing it in the movie that I didn't really pick up on in the book was that those rooms that the parties are in are small. So if Mrs. Bennett is shouting about how her 
daughters are going to be thrown into the arms of wealthy men because Jane's going to marry Bingley. Everyone heard that and everyone was uncomfortable. So it was a very good flashback. So the last part of the letter, Lizzie's talking out loud to herself as she reads it. And Darcy says that there's one thing he actually regrets that he's done. And she's like, oh, really? Astonish me, which I loved because I love this girl. He didn't tell Bingley that Jane was in London when she was, which was a bad move on his part because if he had, maybe they could have talked to each other and worked it out. And he says he's sorry for that. Well, does he say he's sorry? He might not. He says he's not like impressed with his own character on that. All right, close enough. They do do a good job in this, reminding us how difficult it is to travel in the time period, mm-hmm. like in the opposite of Game of Thrones. <laughs> and like, it is, this is also kind of the reason why I'm not super into Anglophile stuff, because I think that all of this stuff is like incredibly slow and I don't really understand or care about the societal stuff unless it is uh, this character, like the layer on top of character development and stuff that we were talking about just with uh, Mrs. Bennett before. But it's like, oh yeah, no, like that would be a really bad thing if you didn't tell someone you were in the same city when it's really difficult for people to see each other. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And she was there for months and he didn't tell her. And she went to visit his sister and like the sister called on her too. Like, it's a very decided, like, hide it from him thing. So not a good move on his part. Yeah. Tough. So that is the end of the letter. And it doesn't satisfy Lizzie. She still thinks he's insufferable. But from the book, we know that she does go back and read it several more times and slowly starts to believe him. We don't really see that here. And then it's time to go to Rosings for dinner one last time with our favorite character, Lady Catherine de Berg. I say that with such sarcasm in my voice. See, I actually love her. I think I know. I hate her. I think she's funny, but I do get bored in her scenes. So same. Same me too. Yeah. It's like, we get it. She's old and rich and Mr. Collins sucks. Exactly. Why do we need a whole other scene of this? Right. I I mean, I personally could just watch her interrupt him and watch him put his hand delicately in front of his mouth for like the rest of time. I'm going to put a pin in this because that was my favorite acting choice. Same. (laughs) When we get to the study questions. Yeah, same. I'm going to come back to that. Yeah, that is also my favorite. So good. So as they're walking up, though, Lizzie is like, I don't know how I'll mourn the loss of Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And she is not being serious at all. But he, Collins, totally thinks that she is. And he's like, oh, yes, my dear cousin. Oh, oh, uh, ew. I don't know if you knew, but uh, Lizzie Bennet, sometimes she says things that are different than what society believes. Who would have guessed? I don't know if you knew that about uh, our main character here. (laughs) Incredible. So they go inside and Lady Catherine turns to Lizzie and she's like, you are very dull today, Miss Elizabeth Bennet. And Lizzie's like, no, I'm fine. And she's like, no, of course, you are sad because you are leaving. And Lizzie's like, "Mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And throughout this whole conversation is when Collins keeps trying to agree with Lady Catherine and Lady Catherine keeps interrupting him and Collins just shushes himself. <laughs> A perfect, perfect move. It's incredible. Incredible. Uh, we'll come back to this. Yeah, we'll come back to this because I think that we all have a lot to say on it in the study questions. Oh, yeah. So Lady Catherine asks Lizzie, asks Lizzie, I'm sorry, tells Lizzie to stay an extra month. And Lizzie's like, really? We, we can't stay. Sorry. Have you ever been at a party 
in like high school and been like, oh my God, my parents, like they need me home. I'm sorry. Like I just, I promised I'd be home by this hour, but it's like three hours before you told your parents you'd be home. Oh yeah. It's like when you call your mom and you're like, mom, I'm going to call you in a minute. You have to say no. And then you're like, mom, can I sleep over? Oh, she said no. (laughs) Sorry. But then imagine you're sleeping over for a fortnight. (laughs) The stakes are too high. They're too high. high. Yes. And this is a moment that actually I loved in the book that they do perfectly in the movie where Lady Catherine just like totally barrels through the conversation on her own. She's like, oh, well, where will you change horses? Bromley, of course. This reminded me so much of like a Jewish grandmother on Long Island. Yes. Like they love me over there. Give my name. All right. So when you change at Ronkonkoma, (laughs) the train conductor, I know him. He goes to synagogue at Beth Shalom with my, I know his parents. And he just, he won't even, it will be two different areas. It will, you'll pay a, a whole $8 less, regardless of where you're going. It's exactly that. So she's like very vexed by the whole thing. She says that she doesn't want them to leave, but whatever. The next morning, Mariah, my favorite character in this entire film, she's unpacked her whole suitcase and is repacking it. And Lizzie comes in and she's like, Mariah, what are you doing? And Mariah's like, Lady Catherine was so severe about how she said we should pack our trunks and I had to repack. And she's like, Mariah, it is your trunk. Lady Catherine will never know. Guys, I don't know if you knew this about <laughs> Elizabeth Bennet, but she- She's a woman out of her time. She, she's a big woman definitely the people. Yeah, just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit different. <laughs> so they go outside to say goodbye. and. Collins and Lizzie have a little moment and Collins is trying to like rub it in Lizzie's face how happy he is in his marriage and how unhappy she is but he won't talk about how unhappy she is and she's like you are very good brilliant and then he goes on about how he and Charlotte are so happy and they seem to be made for each other and then we get so before we get to it he seems so earnest here and you genuinely have a moment of like oh he actually really loves his wife and then he goes and gives the creepiest wave he tucks his chin in and does this like just the fingers wave and charlotte phenomenally looks up she's like startled she's frazzled she's trying to pack everything into the carriage and she looks up and she's like uh hi it's brilliant it's beautiful poor charlotte but she seems fine. She's fine. This is the adaptation version of like in Shakespeare plays that are like straight. But then like when a character makes a face that is obvious, like, wow, we're in the modern times. <laughs> and then everyone laughs and runs away. Like that was that moment right there. Yes. And then Lizzie giving a little like eyebrow raise to her as she's like walking away. Jennifer Eel, the queen of eyebrow acting. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Then they get in the carriage and this part, we talked a little bit in the last episode about how Stanley Kubrick sometimes like steps in and directs a scene, probably, because Lizzie's in the carriage and she looks out the window and Darcy's face just fills the window and yeah. <laughs> reproposes to her. That was the psychic talking. That was the psychic projection I was yes. telling you about. Yes, it's that scene in episode three of Star Wars where Padme and Anakin are talking to each other from across the city and oh my God. and he's about to go die and she's about to go give birth and all of this stuff. Anyway. See, my boyfriend's just made me watch all of Twin Peaks and it reminded me of the opening to the Return series where there's just Laura Palmer's face that just like beams up out of everything and it just feels like Darcy just like beams into the screen. Mm -hmm. And Lizzie 
is like staring at him and she shakes her head and he disappears and then the camera is underneath the carriage and we see the horse's feet like going along have trotting along and there's the music is swelling and it's kind of spooky and honestly this is how it would be shot if the carriage was about to capsize yes yes <laughs> right yes right I was like, oh my God, are they going to make her crash? I had like Fast and Furious brain and it was like, oh, there's going to be an explosion in three, two, one, and then the carriage explodes. Yes, exactly. And then instead it was a commercial brain. That actually brings us to our first study question at the Ooh. end of the scene. So this is specifically about the fact that like, as we discussed in the first part of this episode, Lizzie reads the letter like six times in the book and then has this realization just like sitting on a bench near Rosings. Here, the film directors are going for something a little bit more subtle in how like it builds on her and subtle's the wrong word possibly because of the projection of Darcy onto the window screen. <laughs> but how is her realization about how she feels building in this part, I guess? I think we just, we're seeing it nag at her but I don't think that in this version I don't think that she's noticed how she feels yet I think she has accepted that Wickham sucks at this point but I haven't actually gotten to see her accept what he said about her family and Jane like she's still really mad about that stuff so I, I don't think that she's actually come to any sort of realization yet. Yeah, I agree with that. I think what we were talking about before about Mr. Darcy, we get his interiority. So instead, because it's only from Lizzie's perspective, everyone other than Lizzie is an unreliable narrator. We only understand events that happen as Lizzie thinks of it. This is just true or not true. Because we see Mr. Darcy writing the letter, we, the audience, are seeing the flashbacks, so they must be true. Mm -hmm. That is what the, the film is telling us. This all, all this stuff is true. We now don't get Jane wrestling with it. She's just like, ah, oh, fuck. I guess all that did happen. And then she also called my family uh, terrible. Right. So I guess all, that's true as well. It's like we instead of wrestling with it, we we assume that Mr. Darcy is telling the truth and he's not a bad person. Yeah, I think that's that's a really salient point. And then it also gives more weight to how Lizzie conceives of things once she gets to Pemberley and we'll get there. Oh, we will. Yeah. Also known as the MTV Cribs Region Sierra edition. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, in MTV Cribs, they're there. <laughs> Usually the Ying Yang twins are walking you through, but instead here, no one's there. Right. <laughs> so in the next scene, Lydia and Kitty meet Lizzie and Mariah at the Boo! Yeah, we Boo! hate them. Boo! Well, actually, mostly Lydia sucks. I actually have feelings about Kitty, but we'll get there. So Lydia, I loved this shot because Lydia is leaning out of the window and waving like, Lizzie, Lizzie. And Kitty is standing next to her behind a closed window, which is just the entire vibe for the two of them through the entire book. <laughs> there was another moment in there after she she waved. She's like, oh, I, and then she's like mouthing like, no, I'll, I'll come yeah. back here. Like, I'll do that. I'm like, mm, that's the modern thing. And the modern thing is, is in there. Yeah. So they go and they bring them up. They bought them lunch. Kitty and Lydia have bought Lizzie and Mariah lunch, except they need to borrow the money because they spent it all on a hat that's an ugly an ugly hat actually i really want i wrote down what the lunch was please please tell us it was cold ham and pork and salads and every good thing every good thing double pig salads and just like fuck me up with whatever <laughs> else we got 
actually my favorite thing that was on the table is the celery was that marinated celery that she asks Lizzie to pass her yeah I assumed it was like there was some sort of salads because it was multiple salads yeah so it was like a celery salad and then there were other greens on the table I did it was it was marinated celery I'd be interested to try that that sounds like something that you would get at like with the kimchi when you get like those little yeah yeah that's what I was thinking like like marinated in some chili oil that would be delicious but I don't think that's what it is. No, I don't. I think a lot of the food actually looks like things that I would eat, but is probably not. Wait, you say 18th and 19th century British food isn't delicious? <laughs> what? But there's cold ham and pork. Cold ham what and are pork. What talking about? Two different things. Two different things. Oh, yeah, famously. So they reveal that the regiment is leaving Meryton, and therefore Wickham is also leaving Meryton. And they have a surprise about him. So Lizzie asks the servant boy to leave the room. And in, I think in the book, Lydia did that and then talked about how ugly he was and that they didn't want him around anyway. But they kind of brushed <laughs> over that moment in the movie. So he leaves. And Lydia tells them that Wickham is not marrying Mary King after all. That she left to go to, I don't know, some other British town. And he is safe. And you can see the cogs working in Lizzie's brain. And she says, perhaps we should say Mary King is safe. But she doesn't go any further than that to explain what she thinks about Wickham now. And this could have been a pivotal moment in the book. Actually, the book could have ended here if she had just said, actually, Wickham sucks and Darcy's okay. But instead, she just sits there kind of scowling at the cold meats and the celery. And then lets Lydia be like, yeah, no, actually, I think that he dodged a bullet because she's ugly. In classic Lydia fashion. I thought everyone was going to spill tea because they <laughs> they sent the servant out of the room. It's like, oh, fuck, they're going to get into it. And then they just don't. Yeah, they really like, could uh... have. But this is, we have to remember that someone not marrying someone that everyone thought they were going to marry, but they weren't actually engaged, is the tea in this time period. So the tea was lightly spilt. It was lightly spilled, and then the servant ran back in. It was just a very weak tea. Yeah, weak tea. Right, because it's 18th and the 19th century British food. Right. Very weak tea. Exactly. So this was my favorite, one of my favorite parts, where Lydia was like, aren't you so glad we've come to meet you? We'll be such a merry party on the way home. And then it cuts to them in the carriage, and Kitty and Lydia are just screaming at each other, and Lydia's like, you're lolloping about, and there's no room for my bag. And she's like, you should have just put it up top. I literally wrote down, hey, Lydia's the worst. Is that why people like dislike the youngest characters in all the other books that are like this? Because <laughs> they're all like this. I also then wrote, Lydia is such a butthole, she ruined the family. <laughs> you have no idea how much she's about to ruin this family. Oh, yeah, that's that's a pretty large driving point as you go further into the story. Not only does she ruin it for Lizzie and Darcy, but sh she ruins it for everybody. So, but we'll get there. Well, no, that, that's really interesting now because is Lizzie's the oldest, right? Second oldest. Jane's the oldest. Oh, Jane is the Okay, so that even makes even more sense mm -hmm. because it's like when you compare this to Little Women, it's like... You need the main character sister. You need the one who's like not as good as the main character, but also kind of good, but also like is put upon. You need the sister who blows. Yeah. And you need the sister who's like from Passover when you have the four, mm -hmm. <laughs> four children. Yes. It's like you need the sister who does not know how to ask. Yes. <laughs> so this is like it's very regimented. So that's very interesting. I thought Lydia just sucked, but it's like she sucks so much. Much like I cannot remember the name of this sister because I never read the book. But it was Florence P. Amy. 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 Yeah. Yes. We actually compare this to Little Women quite a lot on our show because it kind of is 
Little Women is kind of like the American Pride and Prejudice, in my opinion. A hundred percent. Because it lines up 100%, so well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We also compare it a lot to Fiddler on the Roof and those sisters. Well, that is interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting because, again, we're talking about who has control of the story. In Fiddler, it's the dad. So it's like when someone does something rebellious, it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's all about perspective. Yeah, and in this, the dad doesn't check the rebellious sisters. He doesn't say, you need to stop. He just kind of laughs at them, which in Fiddler, obviously, he is like, what? Should I do this? Should I do that? I haven't seen Fiddler on the Roof, which is apparently uh, in Molly's book enough to excommunicate me from the Jewish faith. It's on Netflix now, so. I have no excuse anymore. I will watch it. I promise. I will watch it. That's true. Now you have to go see the Yiddish version to like double down and make sure (laughs) that you really know what's happening. Yeah. So we get home and Lizzie tells Jane that Darcy proposed and we get to see Jane reacting to this information. And... Jane feels bad for Darcy, and Lizzie's like, I don't feel bad for him. He's going to be fine. Which, again, makes me think that she has not yet really fully processed what's happening between them. And Jane thinks that maybe there's been a terrible mistake and that Wickham isn't as bad as we think he is. But Lizzie says, no, only one of them can be good. And I'm inclined to think that it's Darcy, based on the information that we got. And also, you know, cultural consciousness of this story and And the fact that Colin Firth is Darcy and not Wickham exactly yes and also Wickham not hot not worth it anyway no absolutely not so Jane asks how Lizzie responded to the letter at first and this is where Lizzie gets to say her iconic line till that moment I never knew myself but that in the book is not a line that she says out loud and also it's not really a line that I fully understood when I read it so I wasn't sure why they decided to have her say it, but... Yeah, I I think this is actually something I can critique about this adaptation, which overall is so faithful and grabs onto the best parts of Pride and Prejudice so well. It's that this line is basically her being like, I've been so arrogant as to think that, like, I am clever and I figured out all these people, but... I didn't even figure out why I was feeling the way I was feeling until I read this letter. Oh, 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 I see. It's interesting because by necessity of it being a film, the movie often has Jane as the sounding board who Lizzie says the things that she just thinks in the book aloud to. Yeah. Which is great because it deepens the relationship between Lizzie and Jane, but you also miss out on some of the more introspective moments of Lizzie by the fact that it's a movie. Yeah, I think that this is the reflex of people who adapt books to uh, visual to TV or movies is that you need to make everything interior exterior, which is on one hand, you see Darcy's side of the story instead of just seeing Lizzie and then Lizzie not really thinking having to talk to Jane instead. So it doesn't, it kind of takes away a very key element of what we love about the main characters of Austin and Bronte novels is that although they don't say it, they think it and they're very cutting and smart and like emotionally in tune. So Like, Lizzie is then just, like, a charismatic person that everyone's kind of ignoring instead of being, like, an interior person who does not have the knowledge, charisma, or experience to say that out loud, which I think is why a lot of high school girls and young women find themselves in these books. So, it, yeah, I mean, it's the movie treatment, you know? It's like, I don't look like Jennifer Eel, so, like, I'm not Lizzie anymore which is kind of a bummer, which is also why I like the casting of, of Georgiana because she was literally a child. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's such a perfect cast. I cannot wait to meet her. Ah, uh, yes. Also, the most extreme version of this is The Handmaid's Tale, which is yes. basically that Offred 
who in the Handmaid's Tale book thinks a lot of very rebellious things cannot say them out loud or she will die. Whereas in the TV show, she says it all out, out loud, but that kind of takes away from how scary it is because she keeps saying things out loud and she doesn't get caught saying them. Right. Actually, I think the most extreme version of this would be The Giver, which I did not see the movie version of, but you're not supposed to know what color is. But anyway, that's a whole other podcast. That's just a flaw in uh, adaptation in general, I think. <laughs> yes. So this is a crucial moment. Lizzie asks Jane if she thinks that they should tell their friends about Darcy actually being a good guy and Wickham being the worst. And Jane, bless her heart, does not want to do that because she's Jane and she is good and she doesn't want to cause harm to anyone. And Lizzie also doesn't want to do it because she doesn't think anyone would believe them. And Jane's relief is so, she's like, oh good, yes, let's not, which was so sweet. And then she says, maybe Wickham feels sorry for what he's done and wants to improve himself. And Lizzie's like, Nope, definitely not. Nah. So it seems Wickham is not trying to improve himself, and apparently neither are we because we talked for too long again and had to cut this episode into two parts. So that's the end of our conversation with Eric for now. You'll have to tune in in two weeks to hear the rest of it. But until then, if you want to follow Eric on Twitter, his handle is at Silvero. That's at E-L underscore S-I-L-V-E-R-O. You can listen to his podcasts, Join the Party and Next Stop, and pretty much anything else Multitude has created, you can check out at multitude.productions. And until next time, stay proper and try to find yourself someone who doesn't hate your family. But if they do, make sure they write a really long letter detailing all the reasons why. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our beautiful show art is designed by Torrance Brown. To learn more about our show and our team, you can check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you like what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us, or just drop us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.